Ford Show. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Ford Show. I'm your host, Jason Ford. Thanks for your company. Well, this year marks the 40th anniversary of one of the classic comedies of all time and one of my favourites, Caddyshack. It's become such a cult hit that even the Dalai Lama was asked by Fox News if he's seen it. Of course, there's the famous scene involving Bill Murray talking about caddying for the Dalai Lama. Have you ever seen the movie Caddyshack? What? Caddyshack, the movie? I don't you don't I know don't, the movie? I don't know. The, the part about the Dalai Lama? So we finish 18, and he's gonna stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. There's a classic movie called Caddyshack, where they talk about the Dalai Lama. I see. And I had to ask you about it. Now, I came across a book last year called Caddyshack, The Making of a Cinderella Story by entertainment writer Chris Nashawati. Chris has brilliantly told the story of how the movie was made, and let me tell you, it's wilder than the movie itself. And I'm pleased to say the author of the book, Chris Nashawati, is my special guest. Thanks for your time, Chris. Thanks for talking to me. So, Caddyshack, 40 years old this year. What is it that's made it a cult classic and why has it endured for so long? Well, I mean, I think it's mainly because it's really, really funny. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not so much a plot movie as a string of gags that are all really great. And it features four performers who are really at the peak of their powers comedically. Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Rodney Dangerfield, and, and Ted Knight. They all somehow together, it's, it's, it's a magnificent chemistry. It's such a quotable film as well. Like, I mean, I don't like playing golf, but it is a golf movie, but it's not a golf movie, if you know what I mean. I do, yeah. It's really, it's, it's always on the list of great sports movies, and I always sort of raise an eyebrow at that because it's really not a sports movie at all. It just happens to be set at a country club where they play golf. But, you know, what's interesting about the movie is that when it was originally conceived by Brian Doyle Murray, which is, who's Bill's older brother, Harold Ramis, the director, and, and Doug Kenny, who was one of the writers and the producer, they, um, they were looking for another class sort of comedy, uh, a snobs versus a slobs comedy. They, the two of the three of them had worked on Animal House together a couple of years prior. And, and they saw, you know, Brian O'Murray had some experience as a caddy, as a kid, uh, as did his brother Bill. And they thought that, uh, you know, golf, they could use their own backstories and memories of, of caddying as kids to create these larger-than-life sort of loony characters. Well, we sort of talk about Caddyshack being a cult movie, uh, but when it first came out, the critics were pretty lukewarm on it. Yeah, I mean, it did, it did okay. It, you know, it wasn't a blockbuster, but it, it did pretty well. But if you go back and read the reviews now, it's really clear that the critics didn't get what audiences years later would respond to. Caddyshack is not about the Mikado's daughter-in-law elect. It's about as rotten a movie as a slop the screen this summer. They didn't see the genius of Murray's performance. They didn't see the chemistry between Michael O'Keefe and Chevy Chase. They didn't see how good of a slow-burning villain Ted Knight was. And they didn't really get what Rodney was up to. This time, Chevy Chase and the wearisome Bill Murray waste our time in a sketchy bramble of golfers, caddies, and country clubs. Even worse than Murray is Ted Knight. He is truly awful. Caddyshack is a hazard, and those who pay to see it may be teed off. Really, I think over time has, has been a movie that has sort of gradually, gradually snowballed into a classic. And, and 
you know, that happens now and then. You know, sometimes it takes time for a movie to find its audience. And, and, and this is a movie that I think was about its time. You know, it's, it's, it's about this moment in America. And it really only found its audience sort of after that time had passed, in a way. Now, you spoke to about 75 people for your book, but you also managed to land the big fish in Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I guess I got a little bit lucky. I mean, Chevy was actually Chevy was it wasn't that uh, that hard. I mean, I, I really I went through the traditional publicity channels for for Chevy, and and sort of explained who I was and who I had talked to and and what I wanted uh, from him. And and he was happy to get on the phone. And once I had him on the phone, he surprised me by not being prickly at all. He was actually a really thoughtful interviewer. Uh, interview and and Bill was a different story. I mean, Bill Murray is notoriously hard to track down. He doesn't have an agent or a publicist, so what he does have is a is a one eight hundred number uh, that you can call and and leave a message for him, and he may call you back and he may not. So I left dozens of messages for him uh, over the course of a couple of months, trying to pull whatever favors I could out of people who knew him and and all of that and. Finally, one night, you know, late at night, I, I happened to still be in my office at work, and uh, the phone lit up, and it was a South Carolina prefix, and I, I sort of, as soon as I picked it up, I, I, there was no mistaking the voice, and, and it was him, and he gave me a lot of time, and was happy to talk about Caddyshack, but I, I shudder to think what would have happened if I if I missed that call. I don't think I, he would have called back a second time. And too, I mean, the fact that you managed to get, I mean, not just the big stars, but, you know, a lot of the cast, production crew, directors, even the, the movie studio to talk to you, sort of indicates to me that, you know, they look back on Caddyshack with great affection. Not only did they have fun, but for many it was a pivotal moment in their careers as well. I think that's true, yeah. I mean, I do think that for a lot of the people who worked on the film, it was sort of the beginning of their career. And so they do look back on it fondly. I also think that they opened up about a lot of, you know, the craziness and, and the drug use and all that stuff simply because the statute of limitations had run out. So they couldn't get arrested for anything that they had done 40 years ago. Because, I mean, even even 40 years on, I mean, you've got the, the Murray brothers. They, they own a Caddyshack-themed restaurant. And I even read, like, last month, uh, Michael O'Keefe, who played Danny Noonan in the movie, caddied at the, the U.S. Open at Wingfoot Golf Club wearing his Bushwoods country club hat. Yeah, Michael is great. He's uh, he really, you know, it's funny. He has a very complicated relationship with the movie. I think for years, he he sort of saw it as as sort of a, a dark mark on it on his resume because you know coming into this, he had an Oscar nomination as a young actor in The Great Santini. I think he sort of thought that while he was happy to make the film and have a ball doing it, for ha- to have that be the one thing you're remembered for, I think you know sort of caught him off guard. It's only really over time. And to see when he's seen, you know how important it is to so many people uh, that he's really embraced it as and and become proud of it. And and now, as you said, you know, uh, caddying at, at Winged Foot, you know, he, he actually learned to play golf there when he was cast in the film. It was they were trying to decide between him and Mickey Rourke, which, if you take a second to think about that, that's a totally different movie. But um, Michael Keith, they asked him if, if he, he could play golf, and he said yes. He lied. Um, and he, uh, he he played for for about a month every day before they started shooting out at Wing Foot, so it's sort of his home club. And so I, I think to see it come full circle for him like that was was really fun. Now 
In terms of your book, I mean, you don't delve straight into the making of Caddyshack, but the, the part I found really interesting was spending a bit of time at the start basically talking about how all these great actors and directors and producers came together, like uh, Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Doug Kenny, and people like Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, you know, to me, I'm, I'm such a, a historian of, of movies. To write just about one movie... I don't see really the point of that. So for me, I, I wanted to know not only about how this movie was made, but why it was made and who made it, when it was made, specifically that decade in the 70s, you know, when comedy was being revolutionized. This is the movie where, where three really vibrant and radical new voices in comedy came together. One is, you know, Saturday Night Live. One was Second City. And, and the other was, was the National Lampoon. And these three sort of voices in American comedy, they flowed together on this film. And this can really be called, you know, the first Lampoon sort of film. I, I mean, I guess you could credit Animal House, but, but I really think that the Caddyshack is where it really comes together. And I, I, just, I just like that period of time. I was curious about it. And the more I dug into it, the more... Uh, it just sort of seemed to me that, that that should be a big part of the story, too. What, what happened was interesting. When Animal House came out, it was a phenomenon. It really it really took the movie industry by surprise and by storm. And so, you know, a lot of people tried to take uh, credit for, for the movie's success. And I think that, you know, Harold Ramis in particular, who was one of the writers of Animal House, along with Doug Kenny, felt that, you know, the director of Animal House, John, uh, John Landis, was getting a lot of the credit. And Harold, I think, felt a little bit uh, neglected. So he knew that on his next film, he wanted to be in control. He wanted to direct it, even though he had never directed before. Which is why uh, when, when, they, when him and Doug Kenny went out to Hollywood to pitch their follow-up to uh, Animal House, you know, they met with a bunch of different studios and they all were very, very interested in getting into business with these guys because they had done Animal House. And Harold's proviso on the whole thing was, was that whatever they do next, he wants to direct it. And when they found John Peters, um, who had a deal at Orion, uh, he said, yes, you can direct it. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is that you know John Peters was always prepared to fire Harold Ramis. I don't think he was totally sold on him as a director. And... Um, it was only after he, he finally delivered the stars, you know, that he eventually got that, that everyone relaxed and let Harold do the film. So, you know, there's a lot of egos involved always in Hollywood. And, um, you know, Harold Ramis is one of the classic good guys in Hollywood, but, uh, or was, and he, uh, you know, but he wanted to get ahead. He wanted to be recognized. He wanted some of the credit. So that's why he really uh, took the reins on Caddyshack. What was the actual pitch? Because I understand Caddyshack wasn't exactly the first movie that they pitched. No, they had a few ideas, actually. They were all sort of half-baked. You know, they went in to meet with John Peters, and, and he said, well, what do you guys want to do? And they started, you know, unspooling ideas to him. And, you know, one was about neo-Nazis marching in Illinois, which was based on something that had happened in the news in America around the same time, but they saw it as a comedy. There was a Western that they pitched, which also, you know, was a comedy, but, you know, it's just, they, was, they were just fragments of ideas. One of them was about a hitchhiker in Tibet. Again, they were really half-formed. And then finally, they uh, came up with the idea 
of the crazy goings on at a, at a country club, a blue blood country club. And that had actually not been their idea at all. They actually stole it from Brian Doyle Murray, who had been sort of developing that idea. And when they, when they finally sold it, they, then they had to go to Brian Doyle Murray and say, hey, I remember that idea you were talking about, about the country club? Well, we just sold it. So you're, you're helping us write this thing. And he was like, fine, let's do it. Because there were, there were several scenes in the, the movie that were based on the Murray brothers' experience in the golf world. Yeah, they were. I mean, you know, all of the Murray children, or the, the, the Murray boys at least, to pay their way through Catholic school uh, and high school, they, they caddied. Um, and they, you know, they had a real strong work ethic. And they started off at the bottom rung at golf clubs north of Chicago. They would be shag boys, and, 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 and then they would work in the clubhouse or the pro, pro shop, and then they'd caddy, and then it, they really worked their way up the ladder and, uh, you know, just, just helped put themselves through school. And, and while they were doing that, you know, they were, they were a blue-collar family who were, you know, suddenly carrying the golf bags of the, a lot of wealthy people. And I think that that sort of class division, you know, is something that they didn't forget. And also they saw a lot of characters – at these country clubs, you know, we're just, it didn't take a lot to turn them into broad movie characters because they were so sort of stupid and silly. So I think that they, they always had the idea in the back of their heads. The character that Brian Dahl Murray played in Caddyshack, that was based on a real-life person that he encountered. That's right, yeah. Lou Loomis, he was based on a character who had uh, had been the, the caddy master at one of the clubs that they, they caddied at, and he was... Uh, you know, an inveterate uh, degenerate gambler that they uh, they really got a kick out of and, and, and would use him as as the basis of that character. I think a lot of the characters in the movie are people that they that they knew. And Brian's performance in the movie is actually really terrific. It's really subtle, and I love him in that movie. I think he's great. And the movie that they pitched was completely different to the final movie that went to the cinemas. Yeah, I mean, that's... Kind of the what's interesting about the movie is that you know Harold Ramis and Bill Murray they 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 both had and Chevy they they all had real strong backgrounds in improv comedy and uh, you know from Second City and 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 their experiences with Saturday Night Live and 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 so you know they knew when they got to the set that there would be a lot of improv and they really sort of threw the original script in the trash uh, once they got there which is not a great way to make a movie, but it's how they did it. And the original script really focused more on the young caddies and the romance between Michael O'Keefe's character and Sarah Holcomb's Irish character. And that, uh, it was really only once they started shooting Rodney and Ted Knight and, and Bill and Chevy that they realized that these guys were giving them such gold that, that that's where the movie was. You know, there's a saying in comedy, you have to follow the funny. And that's what they did, you know, and suddenly the subplot about the romance of the teenage caddies, they all sort of ended up on the, on the cutting room floor. The Zen philosopher Basho once wrote, a flute with no holes is not a flute. And a donut with no hole is a Danish. He's a funny guy. Just having a look at the casting of Caddyshack, obviously the, the big star that they needed at the time was Chevy Chase, who played Ty Webb. But the casting of Rodney Dangerfield's a, a great story as well to play Al Chevy. Yeah, I mean, they were originally thinking of Don Rickles for that part, which I think would have been good too. But at the time, Rodney was really on a white-hot string of performances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. 
every time he'd come on, the ratings would explode. Johnny would be in his chair, slumped over, laughing, you know, crying so hard, laughing so hard he was crying. And, and Rodney was really having this peak moment. And someone had the idea of, you know, like maybe this is, maybe Rodney could do this. And even though he didn't have any acting experience, they thought that, you know, he'd be perfect. So they brought Rodney in, and he was exactly the bull in the china shop that Al Cervic is in the movie, the character he plays. You know, there was some cocaine involved. He was, he, uh, you know, he, he really um, was effusive about taking the role. And, you know, he only got paid about $75,000 for the movie, and he always complained that he lost money on Caddyshack, even though it gave him his start in movies, because he could have made four times that playing Vegas for a couple of weeks. Let's go while we're young. Do you mind, sir? Trying to tee off? I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Damn! Okay, you can owe me. I owe you nothing! When Rodney arrived at the studio the first time, uh, you know, he had on this sort of powder blue suit and a leisure suit and he's sort of straining at the belly and uh, he came into uh, the, the Orion offices and um, he laid down a couple of lines of cocaine on the table and it was uh, not the most professional behavior but it was the 70s so you know you look the other way when, when you've got a movie star uh, you want to get in your movie who makes an entrance like that. What about the rest of the casting Ted Knight who played Judge Smiles in Caddyshack? Well Ted Knight was interesting because, you know, he had just come off a, a really strong run of seven seasons on the Mary Tyler Moore show, um, which is a huge hit and a big Emmy thing and, uh, in the United States. And, you know, he was really uh, a celebrated TV actor at that point. But the problem was that he was so good on that show that, that people sort of thought that he was that character, the sort of dim bulb, blowhard TV news anchor. And I think that, you know, he was having a little bit of a hard time finding something that was different from that. And, you know, when he was cast in Caddyshack, he really jumped at it because it was a different kind of role and it was it was a really juicy part. I mean, I would argue that he gets the best performance in the film. And the thing about it is, unfortunately for Ted, is that he would have a very adversarial relationship with the rest of the cast because not only was he of a different generation, but he was also a, sort of a teetotaler. And he, all of these people would show up on set late every day, hungover, and he was there every five minutes early, you know, with a, with a health smoothie in his hand, ready to do it. And the other thing was that he was not an improv guy. They would make up lines, and he would look at them dumbfounded, like especially Rodney. Rodney would just say whatever came into his head, and Ted would just... He was not used to working that way. He he was used to working in a way where you say what's in the script and you hit your mark. And he was very old school in that way. And I think that Rodney's approach really infuriated him, which you could argue really only helped uh, his performance because he's supposed to be infuriated by Rodney throughout the whole picture. You have worn out your welcome at Bushwood, sir. Is that so? Who made you pulp at his dump, huh? Bushwood. A dump? Well, I'll guarantee you'll never be a member here. Member? Are you kidding? You think I'd join his crummy snobatorium? But his whole place sucks. <laughs> That's right, it sucks. Only reason I'm here is maybe I'll buy it. Buy? Bushwood? You bastard! You bastard! Hey, I'll take it up! Break it up! 
the other character that we all love was Lacey Overall, which you know sounded the like the name of um, one of the Bond girls in the in the seventies. Who played Lacey Overall? Yeah, that's Cindy Morgan, who uh, had been a um, a model and a radio DJ, and uh, this was her real big break as a uh, as an actress. She was really not that sort of sultry, seductress sort of character in real life, you know. She had gone to Catholic school, but she, she felt like she knew the character, and, and when she auditioned, she really turned on the heat, and um, she got the part. They were thinking about Michelle Pfeiffer for the role, actually, but she didn't want to do the nudity that was required for the part, so uh, so she turned it down. Cindy Morgan was great, but she had some problems on the set because, you know, she had some differences of opinion with the with the producer who um, sort of wanted to have a Playboy photographer on set the day that she did her, her nude scene. And she hadn't agreed to that and didn't know it was coming. So she sort of dragged her heels at that and stood up for herself as she should have. And they had a, a real screaming fit. And the producer, John Peters, said that she'd never work in this town again. And, um, you know, because she was being difficult. And, uh, you know, all those classic old school Hollywood threats. And she had a really good time in the movie. And it's a great performance for her. But but she definitely uh, had a hard time, and there were days that were not pleasant for her. And she also had a bit of a hot and cold relationship with Chevy Chase as well. Yeah, I think that's a join the club sort of sort of situation because uh, you know, he, as you said earlier, he can be a prickly guy, and you know, Chevy. Uh, I think that he felt that you know he was a star, and she was sort of a this nobody actress, and and he you know on the pecking order he was higher than her and i think he made a point of letting her know that and i i can't speak for him but but i do think that there was a lot of behavior during that era for chevy that he probably regretted i bet you got a lot of nice ties what do you mean you want to tie me up with some of your ties Ty? how do they come up with the location for the bushwoods country club yeah well they wanted to set the film in chicago because they wanted to have it be a reflection of, of, of the Murray's experience caddying as kids, but they needed to shoot the movie in, in the fall and winter. And obviously you can't do that in Chicago in the winter. It would be, you know, the, the golf course would be covered with snow. So um, they did know that they didn't want to make it in California because they didn't want the studio breathing down their necks. You know, this was Ramis's first movie as a director. The last thing he needed was, you know, nervous executives hanging around the set every day. So uh, they looked around and they went to Florida and they went to a number of clubs down there and many of them said no, but eventually they found one uh, in a town called Davie, Florida, where uh, called Ro- uh, Rolling Hills, and um, they finally got the okay and started shooting there. Now, we can talk about the first day of shooting because you've obviously got a, a very green director in Harold Ramis, a first-time director, and people like Rodney Dangerfield that haven't starred in a movie before. How did it all go? Uh, not well. You know, it took a while for them to find their stride. There was always a joke on the set where Harold Ramis was looking through. You know, they would say, hey, Harold, you're looking through the wrong end of the camera. Um, and I, I think that that, you know, came out of truth. I, I don't think that Harold really knew what he was doing. It took him a while. And he's the first one to he was the first one to admit it. You know, he called making Caddyshack his, his six million dollar uh, 
film school education because he learned everything he knew about directing on the job, making that movie. And it's you know, there were some rocky, rocky days at the beginning when they were focusing on the wrong thing and performances weren't great. And people had to tell him that we really need to get this together because the way things are going right now, you're not going to have a movie at the end of a couple of months. In the book, I like the story about Roddy Dangerfield's first scene, given that he's never acted in a, in a movie before. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if I told you that Rodney didn't know what the word action meant, you'd think I was kidding, but he really didn't. Um, he, you know, his first scene that he shot was the scene that we talked about earlier about the pro shop where he sort of storms in and says, I'll have one of this and one of that. Oh, I can hear me have a half dozen of those Vulcan D10s and set my friend up here with the whole schmear. You know, clubs, bags, shoes, gloves, shirt, pants. Hey, orange balls, I'll have a box of those. Give me a box of those naked lady tees and give me two of those. Give me six of those. Oh, this is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. That scene, when they were about to shoot it, Rodney was off stage and he knew what he had to do and Harold called action and Rodney did not come through the door as he was supposed to. And so Harold went over and he said, Rodney, is everything okay? And Rodney said, yeah, sure, everything's fine, let's go. And he said, well, when I call action, that means you start. And he goes, oh, 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 you mean that's when I do my bit? And he said, yes, that's when you do your bit. So from that point on, whenever Rodney was in a scene, they didn't call action. They said, Rodney, do your bit. Oh, this is your wife. Oh, a lovely lady. Hey, baby, you're all right. You must have been something before electricity, huh? Most comedians are pretty insecure, but at least they have the immediate feedback of a, of a uh, you know, a club audience laughing to know how they're doing. You know, on a movie, you can't laugh. You'll ruin the take. So, and Rodney didn't quite understand that. So when he was shooting a scene and he'd, he'd give one of his one-liners and no one laughed, he really thought he was bombing. And it was only after a few days that someone had to pull him aside and said, you know, you're doing great. I don't know what you're insecure about. The reason people aren't laughing is because uh, if they do, you know, the scene's no good. And in terms of Rodney and a lot of the other cast as well, Chevy Chase and, and Bill Murray, a lot of the great lines in the film were ad-libbed. Yes, that's true. Some of the best scenes in the movie are completely off the cuff. You know, specifically the whole Cinderella story scene with, with Bill Murray. That was something that he just did off the top of his head on the day. You know, Harold pulled him aside and he said, listen, when you're golfing, do you ever do uh, commentary in your head? And the announcer sort of talking. And Bill said, I know you said, I know what you mean. Don't say another word. I got this. Let's roll. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack. Bad Augusta, he's on his final And he hole. did it, he did it in one take. I mean, that's one of the great comedy scenes of the past yards away. 50 years. And that was shoot. all done just in the spur of the moment. <clears throat> it looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole! The other scene that was really largely ad-libbed that, that is, is so memorable uh, is the scene between Chevy and Bill in Bill's shack, Carl Spackler's shack, uh, when Chevy's night golfing and, and hits the ball in there and they have this bonding moment, and, you know, they came up with that that day, and most of it was improvised. They only did a couple of takes, and uh, that was really, both Bill and Chevy said that what they were trying to do in that scene was just try to make the other one laugh, and that's great, and that's a great way to, sh to shoot a comedy scene. However, what isn't known by a lot of people is that Bill and Chevy had bad history. They had bad blood before, before shooting the movie. 
Um, and a lot of people didn't know if they'd get along once they got to the set in Florida because a couple of years earlier they had had a fight backstage at Saturday Night Live and, it, you know, they actually punches were thrown. So that scene, they were both so happy with it that that was really the, th- the thing that melted the ice between the two of them. So what was the basis of the feud at, at Saturday Night Live? Yeah, so what happened was after the first season of Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase had emerged as the real breakout star. And he left the show to go have a Hollywood career. And I think a lot of the cast members who were left behind sort of felt that his ego had gotten a little too big. And when Chevy came back to guest host the show, he apparently showed a lack of humility to his old cast members. And Bill Murray, as the new guy, sort of felt like it was his role to defend his castmates. And so some people said Belushi put Bill Murray up to it, but but it sort of strikes me as something that he'd probably come up with on his own, you know, to sort of show Chevy that that he wasn't bigger than the show, that he wasn't bigger than them, and that uh, to, to sort of put him in his place. So they had some words backstage, and shortly before Chevy came out to deliver his monologue, he and Bill in the hallway at 30 Rock in New York City, where they shoot the show, they threw punches. Bill Murray was only meant to be on set for six days, but originally uh, his character, Carl Spackler, wasn't even meant to have a, a speaking part. So it's, it's quite incredible how much Bill Murray actually featured in the movie by the end of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bill Bill's character, Carl Spackler, isn't really even in the first few drafts of the script. I mean, he's really an afterthought. And, you know, the studio really wanted to get one more star. They had Chevy, Ted Knight, and Rodney. They really wanted to get one more star in. And so, you know, Brian Doyle Murray called his brother and said, hey, you know, before you go back to start the new season of Saturday Night Live, we'd love to have you come down here for a week and, and you know, we'll, we'll worry about what the part is later. But will you do it? And, and Bill did. And he, uh, no one really knew when he'd show up, but eventually he did show up. And uh, again, they left spaces in the script for his character, but they didn't write any lines for him. And Bill just sort of all, he made it all, uh, you know, over the course of six days. And they, they shot all of these scenes with the gopher that they're lucky that they shot because the gopher ended up uh, being the thing that's, that saved the film when they got in the editing room. We'll come to the gopher shortly, but the final shot of the, the film there, where the, the course is being blown up, I mean, that, that's a, a fantastic story in itself. Yeah, it's funny. It's, when, they, when they did show the script to, to the, the club where they shot, and they said, you know, we like it, we're happy to host you here, but this whole bit about loading the golf course that needs to be changed. And they, and they said, sure, 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 everything's going to change, you know. And everything did change, you know, but, but not that part, actually. They just still did shoot that scene, but in order to do it, they constructed this elaborate ruse to get the sort of board members of the club off of the grounds on the day they did the explosion. So the producer took them out on this pleasure cruise out in the, out in the, the harbor. And while they were gone, they started pumping gasoline into the ground and then set on this giant explosion and this huge fireball and it was such a big explosion that there was a plane flying overhead that radioed into the control tower at the nearby airport saying that there had been a plane crash but you know those board members once they got back to the club could not have been very happy the other classic scene which um is quite memorable from caddyshack was the duty scene yeah that was actually based on a real event that happened to uh brian doyle murray remembered that from high school it happened at his high school uh, someone had thrown a, a baby root bar into the swimming pool and, and they had to clean it out because they thought it was was uh, feces. 
So they, uh, he remembered that, I mean, as one does, and uh, he tucked it away for future use, and it made one of the film's best gags. I mean, they, they put the Jaws theme song next to it. Falling And then you get Bill Murray to bite into it after draining the pool, and it's real. That's, I mean, that's 24-karat comedy gold right there. And the other, the other thing that the book made clear to me as well, because I always wondered why, you know, a bit of music from the the Ten Commandments was being played when the bishop was playing the the round of his life. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it's it's funny. Um, the the actor who played the bishop, Henry Wilcoxon, he was an old school, old school Hollywood actor who had been a really big star in the 30s and 40s, and none of the younger generation of actors in the movie really knew who he was. They didn't know his background, that he had been in movies like The Ten Commandments, and been in in many of these old Cecil B. DeMille epics, and that he had been such a prominent and respected actor. They just thought he was another old guy on the set playing a bit part. And one day, Bill Murray learned who he was, and he was so just blown away by that that they became really good friends in the brief time that they were on set together. And um, they even talked about, you know, he gave Bill acting tips. He gave him a book to read about acting. And Bill was saying that he, he still reads that book to this day uh, to get sort of advice about, about acting. So Henry Wilcoxon as the bishop, having the game of his life, you know, uh, the heavy stuff isn't going to come down for a while yet. He uh, is an interesting character, and it's a nice inside joke that they... They play the Ten Commandments theme over that. set the the cast crew um, production crew they all they all stay together so it would have been a pretty wild time and 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 they yeah and and, was, and, and they didn't yeah. and they didn't hide the fact that they were having a wild time either no well there was no one really to hide it from because you know they were three thousand miles away from the studio so there was really no one no no real grown-ups you know making sure that they went to bed on time or obeyed any sort of curfew so uh, the hotel was really just this two-story living area it was essentially like a motel that was connected to the golf course and and they set up the editing room there and 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 also post-production stuff there but they also all lived there and uh it really went from being a motel into like a frat house you know there was partying every night and really um anything you wanted to get you could get in that in that building at any time of the day you take drugs danny every day good Everyone talks about partying with, with Rodney, and, you know, he definitely liked to indulge. And uh, I think his, his vice was more pot than anything else, but he was by no means alone on that set. What was the feeling once production wrapped? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, they, they thought that they were, ha- they were happy with what they had. They knew they had funny stuff, but it really wasn't until they got to the editing room that they realized that, you know, since they had thrown the script away, that none of it really meshed together. It's like, you know... If you are building a house and you get rid of the blueprint and and just sort of do what you like, it's not going to be a solid foundation when when it's all said and done. A lot of rain is going to make its way into the roof and the pipes aren't going to work and the heat's going to backfire. And that's what happened with this movie. You know, they, they had these great scenes, but they didn't work together. And I think the initial cut of the movie was about four hours long. So they knew they were in deep trouble. And so they went back to the studio um, and begged for some more money because they needed 
to reshoot some scenes. And let me back my way into that by saying that it was really the gopher that saved the movie. You know, they didn't, again, they had like, an, they had a bunch of great with no connective tissue and they needed the connective tissue, something to pop up here and there to connect these scenes together. And the producer, John Peters said, well, what if we sort of this gopher that we talk about in the movie, what if we actually shot some new scenes with the gopher and had him pop up as the sort of punctuation throughout the film to connect it all. And it was actually a really good idea. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the gopher, but, but it really is the thing that saved the movie. So they, you know, the gopher, Originally, when they were shooting it, it was just Bill Murray taking on this invisible enemy, really. They had a sock puppet that they shot in one scene, but really it didn't, the gopher didn't exist. So they went back and they built an animatronic gopher and shot some scenes of the gopher and then just wove those in and, uh, and it made the whole thing work. Because one of the first scenes of the movie is the, the gopher ripping up the, the course and then sort of dancing along to Kenny Loggins' song, I'm Alright. So, I mean, basically the gopher sets up the, the movie. Exactly, yeah. No, it really did save the picture. The movie was released, and as we spoke about earlier, the reviews were quite lukewarm at the time. An example was the Washington Times calling it a stinky, dismembered heap. There was a press junket the next day at Dangerfields in New York, uh, Roddy Dangerfield's comedy club. And Bill Murray got up and asked, who liked the film? Then he asked, who didn't like the film? Well, one of the producers on Caddyshack, Doug Kenny, got up and basically told everyone present, the movie was crap. And it was a tough period for Doug Kenny, and unfortunately it had a sad end. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of the tragedies of the movie, is that, you know, Doug Kenny is a brilliant guy who had started, you know, he was an editor at the Harvard Lampoon, and he was one of the founders of the National Lampoon. And he, he, he wrote Animal House. I mean, everything he did in, in his young career had been one success after another. And uh, he gets the Caddyshack. And over the course of, of, of the making of the movie, I think he felt like it had been compromised. He hated the idea of the gopher. He, he felt like some of the jokes that didn't make it in the movie were things that were really precious to him. And I think, you know, just in general, he was he was a drug addict. You know, he was a cocaine addict. And he was using that to sort of self-medicate his way through uh, a very tough post-production process. So by the time the movie finally came out, he was not in a good way. And his best friend at the time was Chevy Chase. And Chevy told him, you know, listen, um, let's get away from the reviews. Let's get away from the movie. Let's go try to clean up. And let's go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks and, and just sort of distance ourselves from this thing and live the good life a little bit. We deserve it. And so they did. And uh, after a couple of weeks, Chevy came back and, and Doug Kenny didn't. They were still using drugs while they were in Hawaii. And um, Chevy had to leave to go back to the mainland to, to do another project. And so Doug was, was left behind on his own. And um, he went hiking one day on the island of Kauai. And um, people back home after a few days hadn't heard from him. And um, it turns out that he had either slipped or jumped from, from a cliff. They found his body at the bottom of the cliff, and um, his shoes were at the top of the cliff. And so it's a bit of a mystery. No one really knows what happened, but it, it's, it's really the sort of sad ending to what should have been a great story. I mean, had he lived just a few years longer, he would have seen this movie become this shining comedy in, in, in the pantheon. But... Unfortunately, he, he 
died too soon. Now, 1980, you had Caddyshack come out, but you also had the Blues Brothers, as well as Airplane, which we all know here is Flying High. They're classics in their own right, but there, there seemed to be a changing of the guard in terms of the style of comedy movie that was coming out into the market now. Yeah, I mean, those three movies in the summer of 1980 are really interesting moment in how comedy is changing. I mean, leading up to the summer of 1980, a lot of comedies were... Mel Brooks comedies, which are cutting edge in their own way, uh, but a lot of them were really very toothless comedies, like Smokey and the Bandit or Oh God was another one that was a big, big hit. And Clint Eastwood, you know, with the Orangutan movie, uh, Every Which Way But Loose, those were the big, big screen comedies. And all of a sudden you had, uh, in the summer of 1980, a real, uh, with those three films, a real sort of new injection of energy and satire. And those movies were, you know, at least Blues Brothers and, and Caddyshack because they were largely comprised uh, of Animal House people. They, they were very competitive with each other. An airplane or Flying High was the movie that sort of caught everyone by surprise. That was the movie that ended up making the most money that summer uh, out of all the comedies. So, uh, and then there's a story about Doug Kenny shortly before Caddyshack opened going to see Airplane and, and just becoming so depressed while watching it because he knew that it was funnier than Caddyshack, or at least he thought it was when he was sitting through it. And, uh, and it really just bummed him out. And finally, what was the highlight from the, the book that you wrote and, and one highlight from the movie Caddyshack? Well, I think the highlight from, from, from writing it and, and working on it was, was just talking to everyone. I mean, I love, I love interviewing people, and, and the reporting was really fun on this. I feel like I was 11 when this movie came out, maybe 10, and I did not live through the era that I wrote about. And I wish I had, because it sounds like it was a lot of fun. So talking to everyone about that uh, was really great. And of course, getting to talk to Bill Murray and, and finally you know, landing that interview was a bit of a white whale. So that was, that was great. It's also been really fun since the book came out to see how many people are also so passionate about the movie. It, it's really, the book's really resonated with a much larger audience than I would have expected. I knew there were a lot of Caddyshack fans out there, but to see the extent of these people's obsession with this movie has been deeply uh, heartening. As far as what my favorite scene or thing about the movie itself is, I would say, you know, it changes, but it, to me, it's the little throwaway lines that, you know, that you that you need to watch the movie 30 times to, to, to really catch. I don't know why I'm so, it tickles me so much, but there's this scene where Spalding, uh, Judge Smales' uh, sort of ne'er-do-well uh, nephew, at the dinner party, he leans over to someone's plate and says, are you going to eat your fat? Now, it's a throwaway line. It's completely improvised. But for some reason, like, I'll think of that line walking down the street and I'll just crack up. And um, it's little things like that about the movie. I just find it a bottomless source of, of entertainment. Well, if there's one line from Caddyshack that sums up the making of the movie, I reckon it's this line. There's a force in the universe that makes things happen. And all you have to do is get in touch with it. Stop thinking, let things happen, and be the ball. Chris, thanks so much for your time. It's a great book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Cinderella Story, and well worth purchasing if you're a fan of the movie. There are just so many more stories we weren't able to cover on the podcast, but I really appreciate you taking the time to share some great anecdotes about one of the all-time classic comedies, Caddyshack. No problem.
Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, that's all for this time on The Ford Show. I really do hope that you enjoyed our trip down memory lane there with Caddyshack. And the book, once again, is Caddyshack, The Making of a Cinderella Story by Chris Nashawati. I'm Jason Ford, and looking forward to speaking to you again soon. Until the same time next week, it's good night from... F-O-R-D.